Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Robert Jordan, whose real name was James Oliver Rigney Jr., is today best known for the high fantasy series The Wheel of Time. He got his start in the 1980s, first with a pair of historical novels in a Western, and then a series of novels featuring Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian. But it wasn't until January 1990, with the publication of The Eye of the World, the first installment of The Wheel of Time, that his career took off. By the time I interviewed him on January 3, 2003 in the KPFA studios, he'd published the first 10 volumes of what was projected to be a 12-book series and was on tour for that 10th book, Crossroads of Twilight. Robert Jordan died in 2007, and the final books were completed by fantasy author Brandon Sanderson. The last one, A Memory of Light, was published in 2013. A television series adaptation of The Wheel of Time from Amazon Prime airs as of November 19, 2021, and has already been renewed for a second season. Robert Jordan, prior to writing this series, you wrote several books in, in a Conan series, a uh, continuation of Robert E. Howard. Is that correct? Yes, I did. And what kind of research did you do for that? Were you a reader of fantasy, of Howard, of weird tales, of any of that I stuff? I had read Howard when I was a boy. It was a great pleasure, really, to be asked to do those books. Then, having done them, I said, "All right, I've I've done that now, and uh, I'm uh, I'm going to go on and do something else." What was the name they were written under? Robert Jordan. They were written under Robert yes. Jordan. You had written a historical family series. Uh, the first book was the Fallon Blood. Is that correct? The Fallon Blood. Yes. Okay. Let's go back a little further. When you were growing up, did you read historical fiction? Did you read Tolkien? What were you What were you reading? Well, what were your to- I, re- I didn't read Tolkien uh, until I was in my teens wasn't available. Right, 1965. Yes. Growing up, I read historical fiction. I read everything I could get my hands on. I read F. Van Wyck Mason, uh, if you remember him, and uh, Henry Treese, and uh, uh, Raphael Sabatini. Any book I could get my hands on, really. Uh, Of course, Mark Twain and Jules Verne, uh, H.G. Wells. I was omnivorous. There seems to be, in my mind at least, some kind of link between historical fiction and fantasy. When I was reading, uh, as a teenager, reading Shogun, I noticed that I was reading a science fiction novel that took place in our world. And to that degree, it appears that the fantasy world, your fantasy world, bears that sort of relationship, only instead of actually researching, you're making it up. In part, in part. Any good fantasy does read like historical fiction because you are taking the reader into a world that one is totally alien to him. Anybody who's read any history knows that a hundred years ago, 
you're in an entirely different world. It's something that bears no resemblance to the world we live in today. None about how not the way people think, not what they did, nothing. And yet it's not entirely made up. It's made up in that I have created the cultures, but I have to do some research on how things were actually done, how cultures actually work to create a culture that you're going to believe is real. If I have not, if I had not read a great deal of history and cultural anthropology uh, to uh, find out how old civilizations worked, I would not have been able to put together cultures in these books that anybody would look at and say, I believe this was, I believe this is real. It's strange, it's different, it's not what I understand, but it holds together. Uh, Tolkien, uh, sort of the daddy, though perhaps E.R. Eddings is also the daddy of this sort of fiction, they set their books in this quasi-medieval world, which mm-hmm. is sort of what you've done here. Well, no. I'm not, actually, I'm not quasi-medieval. I am instead rather the 17th century without gunpowder. Okay. If you look at the things that they have here, the 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 things that are manufactured, that uh, the society that they have, the buildings and so forth, you realize that you're actually looking at something about uh, oh 1690 or 1700 as it would have been if gunpowder had remained a uh, a guild secret of a group of entertainers. So in that sense, you know exactly what historical period you're going to when you're doing your research. I mean, you could Mm -hmm. broaden it as far as you want. Yes. But you want to make it consistent. Yes. Now, you had uh, written this this historical series. Then you wrote Conan. Then you began working on the outline, I would guess, for The Wheel of Time. Yes. Question, what prompted you to create a fantasy? What prompted you to create a fantasy that big? And were there any thoughts or misgivings at the time thinking, oh my God, what the hell have I gotten myself into? What prompted me to begin it? A number of ideas had been kicking around in my head over a period of about 10 years. One day I suddenly envisioned a pastoral village and a trollic. Uh, I didn't even know the name was Trollic at that point. It was a creature uh, who was, in effect, a genetic blending of human and animal, kicking in a farmhouse door. And it just came to me as part of putting these thoughts around. And then another scene came to me, which I will not describe. But I realized that this other scene was a resolution. I realized that if the people that I saw in this other scene were the same people from the first, from that village, that they had changed a great deal. And I realized that I had the basis of a book here, of a story. So that's, that was the genesis of the, of the Wheel of Time. But when I went to my publisher, I didn't know it was going to be as long as it is now. But you did know it was going to be at least five or six. Oh volumes. yeah, four, That's five. Huge. Yes, yes, yes. A huge. Well, I, my my first thing that I said to him was, uh, Tom, uh, this isn't a trilogy. Because in those days, that's what you published. It was a single volume or a trilogy. That was it. And I said, this isn't a trilogy. It's going to be four or five books. And I, frankly, I said the four just to ease my way in because I was pretty sure it was going to be five books. And I said, well, it may go to six, but I don't think it will. 
Well, he was willing to accept that because he likes the things I've written. He went with me on that. Most publishers would have thrown me out the door at, at, right at that point and said, you know, come back when you've cut it down to a trilogy. At that point, when you approached Tom Doherty about doing that, did you have an outline? Had you started that? or I, what, had, I, had a, I had a very basic outline, a very basic outline. And I would not even tell him the exact way that it ended. I had written it out for him and said, if you want more, I'll give you this. But this is what I'm proposing. Doherty kind of went out on a limb in the same way, say, that the people at New Line went out on a limb with Peter Jackson, just saying, go for it. Yes, he did. He did. And he stuck with me through all this time. From the beginning, I found a, a major problem in that I would sit down thinking that I could put X amount of the story, because I know the story. I've known that last scene of the last book for 18 years now. I've known where I've been heading. I have sat down thinking I could put X amount of the story into this book and then discovered that I could only put two-thirds X. With Crossroads of Twilight, the same thing happened. If I, This book is almost 700 pages. Right. But if I had put everything in it that I had wanted to put in it when I sat down, it would be 1,200 pages and... Uh, it wouldn't have been released until this coming fall because it would have taken me longer to write as well. Eye of the World was originally only part of the very first volume, right? It wasn't even well, the whole yeah, thing. Well, I wasn't. Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, uh, the Eye of the World, which is where you must start. If you haven't read me before and you try to pick up Crossroads of Twilight, you will be lost in ten pages. I tried. I tried. No, you must start <laughs> with the Eye of the World, uh, which thank God is still available. I can't believe that. <laughs> 13 years in print in hardcover. I cannot believe it. When you began, did you have any inkling of the importance of, say, the character Rand? Or was he just the starting point? Uh, no, I, had a, I knew that Rand was the key. Rand was a keystone. But if you'll note the way I've written this, Rand, you, you can't really say that Rand is the hero. I d don't believe in the man on a white horse being the utterly lone savior. He, here is a man who is, quote, born to be the savior of mankind, born to, to meet the dark one in the last battle, close quotes. But uh, the fact of the matter is he doesn't get to do anything without a large supporting cast. And there are all sorts of heroes, all sorts of people who have their stories tell, told because if they don't do what they do, then he is never going to do what destiny says he is supposed to do. He's never going to get there. Well, also, I would think that in 7,000 pa 7, pages, you'd probably have quite a few major characters. Well, you'd have yes. to. There was a, th a thought of that from the beginning, that there were going to be uh, a good many major characters and a good many major storylines. Well, when you begin something like that, uh, let me go back to the question, your own trepidation of feeling like, oh, my God, I've committed myself to X number of years just on this four or five volume series. Mm -hmm. oh, well, I, I had a great deal of trepidation about it. I worried because I knew from the beginning that what I was doing was something actually that I hadn't even told Tom at that point. With most books, you think if, you, if a trilogy is good, each of the books has a certain degree of standalone quality. That is, you could, you could pick up the second book and, and read it, and it, it's quite all right. Or the third book. You, you understand what's happening, what's going on. And I knew that I was writing a multi-volume novel and that I could spend 
only a minimal amount of time in any volume in bringing the reader up to speed or recapitulating what's happened before. I had the worry, a quite real worry, that by the time I finished this, that the first books would be out of print uh, and that, uh, therefore, I might find myself writing books that I could not find very many people who wanted to buy simply because they had no way, no access point. The, the, the beginning, the first books were now out of print, the usual way that happens. Uh, so it's been a, a wonderful surprise and very pleasant surprise for me that enough people have wanted it to keep, as I say, the eye of the world in print in hardcover for 13 years now. Were you afraid of growing stale with the material at some point? There is that fear in the beginning when you start something this big. I no longer have that fear because, one, I'm getting close to the end now, and uh, two, I've realized as I went along that the way I have structured this writing of it works against staleness on my part. Quite deliberately, I did not plot in great detail before I began the series. I have begun each book by saying, I will, I know the, uh, well, for the whole series, I have known the major things that I wanted to happen. And with each book, I will say, I will, I'll take this major thing and that major thing and this other major thing, and I will bring those into this book and see what I can do. And now I will sit down and plot how I'm going to get from one to the next. But then when I start the next book, I've got a, a, a new beginning because I have to start from the end positions of the last book, where everyone was, what their circumstances were, and I take the next set of things, major events, and see if I can fit them into this book, and how do I get to these from this new starting point? The fact that I haven't planned in that great a detail until I start the book means I'm not trying to work to a absolutely rigid outline. Let me ask you a couple of questions, Robert Jordan, which only readers of the book will know. Was there any character that came out of the blue that threatened to take over the book? And if so, which one? And was there any character that you expected to take a leading role and wound up taking a real backseat? Any writer who tells you that a character has taken over the story or written, started writing the story or the story has started writing itself, that writer is either lying and or condescending to the people he's talking to. But on the other hand, there are characters you invent that suddenly are so much fun and so good to work oh, with yes, that that yes. happens. That's what it I'm asking. It can happen. But no, there are characters that I would have done more with because I've, as I've developed them, I've discovered them to be a great deal of fun either because they were simply interesting or because they were so wonderfully nasty that uh, you know, it's it's sometimes great to be able to write from inside the head of somebody who is just thoroughly out and out rotten. You know, the, the, the no no moral qualms whatsoever. Which character but, are we uh, talking about here? Oh, some of the Forsaken and a, a few others. Uh, Pedro Nayal. Uh, I would have loved to have done more with him. Uh, a man who's very much was very much in the uh, on the side of good and right and knew exactly what good and right meant and had no moral qualms whatsoever about doing anything at all to promote what he saw as the cause of good and right. And, of course, the, the horrible thing was he actually was on the side of 
what anybody would say was good and right. He just had no, 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 no breaks, no, no qualms whatsoever. You're listening to an interview with the late Robert Jordan, author of the Wheel of Time series of fantasy novels, who died in 2007 at the age of 58. The interview was conducted for book number 10 in the series, Crossroads of Twilight, on January 3rd, 2003. From what I'm hearing is that characters intrigued you, you enjoyed writing them, this particular character, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time you didn't have the, the self-indulgence to say, to heck with it, I'm going to keep that character on center stage much longer than I should. That is self-indulgence. I am crafting a story here. I want this thing to work in the way that I want it to work. Not sim- I'm not playing. I am putting together a story that has followed, well, I said I didn't have a rigid outline. I have, I, have, one, yeah. I have a general outline, and I have wanted it to work in particular ways. First off, I wanted someone to read this entire set of books, be able to read this entire set of books, and find it a coherent and interesting story about interesting people, not all of whom have wonderful lives, and not all of whom will live to the end. And at the same time, I wanted people to be able to read The Eye of the World and believe that they knew certain things, and then reading The Great Hunt, learn a little bit more, so that if they went back and read The Eye of the World again, they'd find out that their viewpoints had changed, and things that they hadn't noticed before became more important, so suddenly they're reading a slightly different book. And then they would go on and read The Dragon Reborn and have their viewpoint shifted again a little bit more. So if they went back and read The Eye of the World a third time, they would find they were reading a third novel, slightly different again, and that The Great Hunt had now also been shifted in their heads, and so on. So there's a lot of prefiguring, some of it deliberate and some of it serendipitous? Most of it deliberate, I hope. Some of it serendipitous, but uh, it's not. It's nothing open prefiguring. I have fans write to me and say, I went back and read this, and I suddenly saw this casual mention here, or I suddenly realized that the conversation that these two people had, I thought I knew what was being said here because I was in the head of this particular person And now, having learned more, I realize what the other person was actually saying. It's something entirely different. Robert Jordan, how do you feel about drawing drawing it to a close? Do you feel sad? Do you feel happy? A little happy, actually. I feel like somebody who has been running a marathon. I feel like somebody who signed up for a 10K and then found out halfway through that he was actually in the marathon. But I've, I've managed, I think, a good time for 22 or 23 miles, and that's fine. I've, I've done my best time ever for the 22 or 23 miles, but it won't mean anything until I've finished the 26 and change. When you're done, do you think you'll ever go back to this world? To or this world? No. You're no. going to be done. Absolutely I will be done. done. There are three short novels that I intend to do, and I will be doing interspersed with the the last novels of The Wheel of Time, that are, in effect, prequels because they are set around incidents that happened prior to The Eye of the World that my publisher had asked about and fans had asked about, and I finally realized I could write something about those that would be interesting. But short for me, uh, 70,000 words, perhaps 80,000. That's a very short novel. It would be very short for me. Robert Jordan. There was a comment I read in a review of your later books 
that the balance of intrigue, political intrigue, and magic seems to be slipping toward political intrigue. Do you think that's the case? No, I don't. Uh, I think that what is happening is that we're moving to a different level. In earlier books, many there were characters who were on a level of individual adventure. How do I myself stay alive? But these characters have changed, and they are no longer responsible just for themselves. They're now responsible for larger groups of people. That means that many things have moved beyond their, uh, beyond simply this individual adventure of staying alive myself. I must keep a lot of people alive. You could say that's a, a, a shift. It's hardly a shift when uh, some of the major political events revolve around uh, what people would call magic. Do you think any of the political events of our times seep into this uh, fantasy? Or have you tried well, to keep it all separate? I, I've neither tried to keep it all separate nor tried to make it a, a, a reflection in any way. But it must have some touch of current events uh, simply because I have lived through these things. And I think anybody puts something of what they have lived through into their writing. I, I'm not certain that a writer who could filter out everything he or she has lived through, just filter it right out of their, uh, their writing completely. I'm not certain that writer would be entirely sane. Well, actually, I'm not sure any writer is entirely sane, but uh, I think that writer might be absolutely looney tunes and lock them up in a padded cell, please. You were a Vietnam War vet. How do you think that part of your life informs these thus far 10 books? I find it difficult. I've been asked that question before. Uh, I, I think in a, a, a micro sense, there is the knowledge of what a battle is like, what it's like to have somebody trying to kill you, which is by and large confusion. In a macro sense, uh, I suppose the inevitability of betrayal comes in. A great many young men who were told that we must honor a compact that has, has been entered into between civilians and young men who are willing to wear a uniform. You go off and fight the war, and you don't point your guns at the government and take over the government. You go where the government tells you, where the civilian government has told you to go and fight. And in return for this, you will be honored. And we came back to find that the civilian government had sold us out and that no one wanted to honor us at all. It's a very strange thing. I realized that when I touched down at Oakland, flew in through, I came back the, for, for my last tour through Oakland, that getting off the plane, I had exactly the same feeling that I had when I was going into country where I knew the NVA was. I wasn't coming home. I was coming into enemy country, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. It took me a number of years to get past that feeling. Uh, I did not walk around uh, in bits of my uniform uh, becoming homeless or any of that. It's one of the things that irritates me most of all, the incidents of homelessness and psychosis, combat-induced psychosis, they call it now, among Vietnam vets was no higher than among Korean War vets, World War II vets, or whatever, yet inevitably the portrayal of the Vietnam vet is as a uh, someone who has uh, combat-induced psychosis and cannot get his life together. 
I'm sorry. A lot of us got our li- came back and got our lives together and just went on with things, you know. As I'm hearing you talking about that feeling of coming into Oakland, I can kind of sense that how you can use that in the way your characters feel as they move into new territory or even old territory mm-hmm. as well. There's always this evil threat going on in your book that yeah. never goes away. So there's, there's never coming, there's no coming home to that degree for those no, characters. No, no. Uh, but in a very real sense, there's, there's, never any, there's never coming home for anyone because by the time you come home, you're not the person who left. And your home isn't and the And your place. home isn't the place you left. It's, uh, that's, that's simply the way it goes. That's life. How many books are left? If I'm lucky, two more. I say if I'm lucky because I know it will take at least two to finish it, but I'm not certain that I can finish it in two. If I can finish it in two, I will. As I said, I want to finish that marathon. I want to actually cross the finish line. 26 miles in change and give me my time, thank you, and let me go home for a while. I will, I hope, realize when I get the next book underway whether I can actually finish it in two books or whether I will have to go to a third. Please, God, are you listening? Just two. Robert Jordan, when you're working in a series, this is true also true for mystery series or any even series where things change, where the books stand alone and they're not mm-hmm. one huge series. There's always a problem with consistency. There's always a problem with remembering all the details. In a series of this length, how do you do that? Do you have volumes at home sitting around of your world or is it all in your head? Or uh, what? A, a combination of things. The story is all in my head, uh, the things that are going to happen. And a surprising amount of what has happened is still in my head. Uh, And then I keep copious notes uh, on every culture, on major individuals, and uh, on the Aes Sedai, the women who can wield the one power and so forth. And I add to those notes as things come up in books, as I create new tidbits, if you will. And occasionally, I will make use of uh, my assistant, Maria, who's a cousin, uh, Maria is, uh, she does the things like write out the checks to pay the bills. So I sign them and it saves me a little time there. And she does the, you know, she takes care of the stuff that allows me to have more time to write. But she also is a fan of the books and she has a photographic memory. So I can go to her and say, there was a conversation between Egwene and so and so. And I believe it was in the fires of heaven and. Egwene said this, and I, I, I'm not, I want to know exactly what I had the other person say. How did I have that other person react exactly? Uh, because I want to do this, and I need to make sure that what I'm doing now is not going to contradict that reaction. If they were amused, it's one thing. If they were angry, it's another thing. I, so I need to know the exact reaction. And I ask her that and go back to my desk. And five minutes later, she comes to me and says, it wasn't the fires of heaven. It was the shadow rising. And here is the scene. And she has printed it out. So that's a great resource. Uh, And between these things, I managed to uh, not have too many uh, occasions of Homer nodding. Have you ever found an inconsistency Maybe even two or three books later, and you're going, oh, my God, what do I deal with it? How do I deal with it? Uh, most, I have found errors of that sort. Sometimes there have been printer's errors, thank God, that simply got by where somebody misspelled something. And uh, occasionally I have found an error. Uh, in one case, the name was wrong. 
It was the wrong person. Everywhere else in one sentence, the wrong name was given to someone. And I, you simply in that case, I simply send a correction up to, up to New York and say the next edition that comes out, you have to correct this. And they do. The thing where in one book, a minor character had blue eyes and, and somewhere later, I, I bring that character back for something and mention dark eyes. And it didn't get caught that I had said this person had blue eyes four books ago. That, I have not done that with a major character, thank God. How aware are your readers of that? I would think that they would catch everything. Uh, they do. I get letters. Uh, quite often, that's the way it's, get, these things get discovered, is I get letters from the fans saying, well, you know, uh, on page so-and-so of, uh, of, of The Great Hunt, you said this, and uh, on page so-and-so of, of, path of The Path of Daggers, you said this, and uh, how do these two things square up? And in some cases, they've discovered that it was blue eyes then and dark eyes now. And in other cases, I have to write back and say, no, look, these two things do not contradict. There's this and there's this and there's this. And you missed this in Lord of Chaos, which provides a bridge between these two things. And you, you see it's quite consistent there. The thing is, they find a lot of errors, including a lot of errors that aren't really errors. It's, that, that helps, too. Robert Jordan, do you think people want to go to your world or they just want to read about your world? Based on comments and questions from fans, I would say a good many of them would like to go there. Uh, I myself would not. I find it uh, entirely too interesting in the, in the sense of the, the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. But uh, a lot of people do seem to uh, think it would be a, a fine place to, to go live. I'm, as I say, I do not agree with them. Uh, you've also said that uh, the difficulty in writing contemporary fiction or most fiction is that there, everything is in shades of gray, whereas one of the great things about fantasy is it doesn't have to be in shades of gray. It can be black and white. It can be. I believe there is such a thing as right and such a thing as wrong. There is good and there is an e evil. Sometimes it is difficult to tell the difference. But it's worth making the effort. And in a great deal of contemporary fiction, it seems to be, the message seems to be that because it's difficult to tell the difference, it's re there's really no point to putting out the effort. We just go with what happens, and, and good or evil just depends on uh, your perception of it. Well, you know, I'm sorry. There, there are things that uh, child abuse and a lot of other things that, to me, are evil. Uh, I see no, no way to say that I can look at the, these things and say it's, uh, it's just a matter of perception. It isn't a matter of perception. They're evil. Robert Jordan, my understanding when I walked into this was that the bulk of your readers were teenagers, say, between 15 and 21. Mm -mm. But it seems no. to be not, not the case. Oh, no, no, no. Um, the the line that uh, lines that I've had the line at San Jose of uh, six hundred people and uh, uh, twelve year olds and uh, seventy year olds and uh, male female black white Asian Hispanic uh, every kind of dress and class and uh, profession and uh, non and no profession and my English publisher did a. Uh, a survey to try to find out where to put public, where to put advertising, and came back to me and said, "Your readership is perfectly spherical." I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, 
you've matched the demographic of England. He said, if, if a certain percentage of the English population is in a certain age group, that is the, pop, that is the percentage of your readership that is in that age group. And you also match it for not only for age group, but for income level, educational level, political party they belong to, region of the country. He said, you've taken an ice cream scoop out of England. And it seems to be very much the same way in the United States. There is no such thing as a Robert Jordan reader. The person who is reading one of my novels is uh, straight or gay, black or white or Hispanic or male or female or, uh, them, or 12 years old or 75. There, there, there's, there's no way you can point a figure and say that is a Robert Jordan reader and that isn't. When I was talking to a writer named Alan First, who creates a sense of place of 1940s Europe that is unprecedented, and I asked him, how do you do it? He said, I just do it. Do you have any keys? Do you have any idea why your books are appeal to that kind of range and people read what they want into it? Do you have any concept? I don't know. I really don't. To me, the real fascination is the characters. I have tried to make my people seem like real people. And in many cases, the, 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 uh, for many writers, the notion is you have a wonderful idea for a story, and all right, now I've got to toss in a few people to move along and make this story happen. And to me, I like the characters. I like the way the characters interact with one another and the way the characters react internally to, to events or situations. That's the only thing I can think of and why that would be, be an attraction, a particular attraction, I don't know. I, just, I guess I'll have to say I just do it. I don't know how it happens. And you had no idea nor you know, concept that it would do this. You didn't even oh, know your no. first book was going to be in print. No, I, no, 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 I didn't. I, as I say, I, even when I thought I was only going to take uh, five or perhaps six books to do this, I really worried that the first book, first books would be out of print by the time I finished. Right. And therefore, it would be very difficult for anybody to, to read the thing in its entirety. Uh, it was a big chance I was taking, but uh, worked out. <laughs> it worked out, and uh, I've always been a little nuts in that way. I suppose I, I said, right, no writer is absolutely sane. I uh, I was willing to take the shot that it might work. Two questions. First question, relating back to some stuff we talked about. What you're saying, what I'm hearing, is that despite this broad plot, on some level, these books are all character driven. And yet, when a book is character-driven, even though you are in control and, as you said, a writer is nuts if they say that the character takes over, characters develop certain consistencies. Mm -hmm. They have to do things for certain reasons. Of course. That's the major failing of so many writers. And uh, it's why you only have a few writers, I think, one reason why you have only a few writers who we think of as really wonderful uh, is because quite often a writer gets to a point where this thing, this character has to do this thing, but that thing is not in character. Right. So instead of setting up how to make this character do the thing that is out of character, they simply have the character do it anyway because there isn't time or they don't want to make the effort or whatever. 
good writers don't do that. And uh, in this sense, at least, I'm a good writer, I think. Do you think that it's know. always possible to do that? I think it, it is. I think it is. It can be uh, incredibly uh, difficult. It, the more out of character the thing is for this person to do, uh, then the more difficult yeah. it is, obviously, to, to set up the circumstances where they will do that thing. But it is possible, I think, to set up the, the, the circumstances where uh, a nun will beat up a Harley-Davidson club. You know, I mean, it's... It, it's you have to work at it. But it's also true that a lazy writer will not. True, that's true. I suppose a lazy writer won't. Actually, I used to write for 25 or 30 hours at a stretch and grab a meal where I could, take it to my desk, and then I would stop and, and sleep for uh, seven or eight hours, and then I'd get up and uh, do another 25 or 30 hour stretch, and I did not care if I was going to bed at two o'clock in the afternoon or waking up at two o'clock in the morning. That was fine. Then I got married, and my wife revealed to me that wives do not like husbands to keep that kind of schedule, so I, I changed my schedule. But no, I'm I, lazy. I'm not, at least not when it comes to the writing. Or perhaps I'm actually I'm, I'm ultra lazy, which is to say I will work my behind off in the hopes that I will get the work done faster and thus have time, more time to be lazy. I keep saying I would like to sit in front of the fire and read, and I do like to do that, but if I do it for too much or too long, I begin to get antsy. I need to get back to my desk and start writing again. A friend of mine who, a uh, very good plot developer, someone who has talked to me about similar issues as, as, as you talk here about, about the nature of character. And a lot of it was in complaint about another writer who we who is a lazy writer. Mm-hmm. Once said that for him, putting a novel together is a series of solving puzzles, just like the puzzle of what causes something and where you go to the next step. Do you agree with that? I can see looking at it that way, yes, because there there is a great deal of that in structure. You want this to happen. But how do I make it happen? And more so, I want this to happen, and it must happen with these people who I have already created in my head. We'll say that I'm not starting out, so the people are already fully fleshed. If it's in the beginning, a new book, a new beginning, then I can make those people anyone I want them to be. Uh, And that makes it easier. If it's later in the book, even, they're already three-dimensional. So how do I make these people do this? All right, there's the puzzle. So yes, I could see it. Look, see looking at it that way. But it also means that a book like Crossroads of Twilight becomes a more difficult book to write than Eye of the World. Yes, Yes, but I'm a, I, I would hope that I'm a better writer now. It's, if I'm not a better writer more than a decade after, after the, the eye of the world, then I would be very disappointed in myself. My goal is to keep getting better with every book, every book to make it better than the book I wrote before, than anything I've done before. And it seems a very simple goal, and uh, I would just try to keep doing that until I die. Robert Jordan, 
When the series is over and you've written the short novels, what do you write next? Do you have any ideas? It can oh, be fantasy, anything? It will be fantasy, yes. Because I've had some things kicking around in the back of my head for about seven or eight years. And I've talked with my wife about them uh, because she's my editor, a very good editor, Harriet McDougall. And, uh, and she's a very good editor. And I've talked with my agent about them. And they both think that what I should do and what I'm leaning toward doing is another series, not as long <laughs> as the eye of the wor- as the wheel of time. Sorry, not as long as the wheel of time. Uh, I'm looking at a very tightly controlled two trilogies, which I will try to limit it to. I, I swear. And 30 books later? No, 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 no. I, I would like, it, it, it would, if I can make the story fall out as I want it to fall out, it will fit very neatly into two trilogies. Uh, and each of them will even in its own way be standalone as a trilogy. Anyway, that's, that's what our, the prospect is. A different world, different universe, different cultures, different people, no connection with the Wheel of Time, really, except that there will be a clash of cultures as part of this. Uh, something I find interesting is the meeting of very different cultures and how they are forced into dealing with one another. And, and that's a very important part of the, uh, of the Wheel of Time, and I think it'll be a part of this as well. Those books were never written. On March 23, 2006, Robert Jordan announced he'd been struck with a fatal heart illness and had at most four years to live. He continued to work on that final book, A Memory of Light, and revealed plot details to his family in the months before he died. That final book was split into three books, starting with The Gathering Storm, and was completed by fantasy writer Brandon Sanderson, who had been chosen by Jordan's wife to finish the series. Robert Jordan died on September 18, 2007, one month before his 59th birthday. The entire series was completed, and the last volume, A Memory of Light, was published in 2013. Wheel of Time has now been adapted as a series for Amazon Prime. The interview was conducted on January 3, 2003. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.